and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer, and my co-host Jim Elliott will be joining us shortly. Today we have Michael Whitmore with us. Hello, Michael Whitmore. Hello, great to be with you. Now, thank you for being here now. Michael Whitmore is the director of the Folger Shakespeare Library. He was formerly a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and before that served as associate professor of English and assistant professor of English at Carnegie Mellon University. Mike has a long list of scholarly works, including five published books. Among them is Shakespearean Metaphysics, which I admit I have not yet read, but the title is intriguing, and perhaps we'll get into that a little bit. Anyway, thanks for being here, Michael. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here with you. All right, so we'll start, of course, with a, uh, a digression. Tell me about Shakespearean metaphysics. Well, I got really interested in uh, a couple of philosophers, Spinoza, who's a 17th century philosopher, Alfred Whitehead, who was a mathematician. And um, I got interested in this idea that um, the world is actually made up of events and not things. And that was the kind of underlying idea for Whitehead. And so I just started to think of plays in that way. You know, what are they made of? How are they built? And what could we learn about the universe by asking kind of what Shakespeare thought of his theatrical universe? So that was a, you know, it was, a, it was an adventure. I, I gotta say, it's a book that I think very few people have read from front to back, but I really enjoyed writing it. And the Spinoza chapter was about music and the Tempest and uh, a friend of mine, Caroline Shaw, who's a magnificent composer, actually composed a piece of music um, that kind of came out of a dialogue we had around those ideas of Spinoza and sound and The Tempest. So her piece is called The Isle, and um, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. So that was a complete thrill to be able to work with an artist kind of using ideas as the basis. You, uh, you have an interest in metaphysics and mathematics and, and an interest in music. We were just talking before the interview about, mm -hmm. about music. And so you're approaching the subject matter with both halves of your brain, right brain and left brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't see any way to separate them. I've been a musician all my life. I started as a drummer and then I became a bass player and now I play guitar. Um, but I'm, I think music is one of those primal languages that all human beings react to. Um, yeah, I'd say music, verse, and dance, you know, those, those are the things that, that really hit us where we are. And you're the director of the Shakespeare Library. Well, tell us a little bit about the Shakespeare Library. First of all, I, it has a fascinating origin story, doesn't it? Well, it, it, it is. It's an amazing place, and I encourage everyone to visit us on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So it was founded by a couple, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Folger, he was president of Standard Oil, and over the course of a lifetime of collecting, he created the largest single Shakespeare collection in the world. So, for example, there are 82 first folios in our collection. The first folio of Shakespeare's plays was printed in 1623, and it has 36 of his plays in it. It's one of the most studied books in the world. It is an amazing, almost memorial to Shakespeare in the form of a book. But then there's 22,000 linear feet of material that scholars come to study that we exhibit and we interpret. There's also the first permanent Shakespearean playhouse in America was created in our building. So we opened our doors in 1932 and 
from the outside, it looks like a Greek temple. And then on the inside, it's a Tudor interior. So there's a great hall, banqueting hall. There's a, a fantastic library room and then the theater. So it's really, um, it, it, it hits you on all levels, I would say. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, the connection between the Folger Theater and the Shakespeare Library. I know from having spent a little time in D.C. that you occupy some pretty prime real estate there in D.C. You're right there on Capitol Hill. I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I did study our building as soon as I arrived because it's such a, it's such a powerful statement. And then I learned that it was intended as a living memorial to England's poet, but it was understood also as part of the D.C. civic landscape. So in 1929, when the newspapers were reporting about Mr. Folger's grand idea, they, they said in the chattering kind of columns of the newspaper, now Washington will have memorials to three great individuals, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and William Shakespeare, and they will all line up in a row, east to west. I, you know, I, I just find that so startling because I don't think of Shakespeare as as part of the class of people we think of on the mall, Dr. King, uh, the various memorials. But I think it's very significant that a poet and a research library and a performing space that are dedicated to the words of a writer who touched on so many experiences that that would be placed next to the US Capitol, which is the place where we transact the business of democratic life using words. And so it's, it's a bit like word central, uh, the, the Congress, which is legislating with words, the Supreme Court, which is interpreting words, the Library of Congress, which is the, one of the largest collections in the world, and then the Folger. And we're all thinking about the power of the word, including on our stage, the power of the spoken word. That's a beautiful notion. I have a background in rhetoric. That's what my PhD is in. So I think a lot about how words get into public life. And, you know, it's a two, over 2000 year tradition that Shakespeare knew very well. He probably himself taught the figures of speech and other genres of rhetoric. So there weren't any English majors when Shakespeare was around. <sighs> there were people who studied, taught and learned rhetoric. And so I, I think he really understood that tradition. And when I think of the Folger being, it's, it's actually facing the, the it, it has a side of the building that faces the Capitol and it has two quotes, one quotation, uh, for wisdom's sake, which all men love from love's labor's lost. And I think that's kind of sending a message to the Capitol that we need wisdom as part of being uh, good, good governors and participants in a democratic society. And then the other one, uh, there's a sculpture of Puck and underneath it says, oh, what fools these mortals be. <laughs> and that is pointed at the Capitol too. I don't think that's a mistake. In a way, I mean, in a way this building, and I encourage people to visit it, it actually looks like a book. It has, it has the typography of the first folio, the spelling of the words from the first folio carved into it. So it really was meant to be a book, but it's kind of a talking book. Um, to use an album title from Stevie Wonder. It's a talking, <laughs> it's speaking to the Congress. And well, what is it saying? Um, part of what it's saying, and it's what I take from Shakespeare's plays, is that human beings are amazing. We have all this complexity, but we also have these 
real foibles. And um, I remember John Adams had written a letter and he said, uh, I, I just reread Shakespeare's history plays, all of them, twice. I think that's right. And he says, you know, what they taught me was the human beings are jealous of power and they're self-serving. And we have to acknowledge that and create a form of government that will protect us from what people can become. And that's not a trivial insight. And, and mm -hmm. I would say the plays, certainly the history plays teach you some of that, but to have someone who's a, a, an architect of a government really thinking about it and then deciding we will need a divided government where no one holds all the power I, I just see that as an amazing link between the storytelling power of a great writer and then this larger world that we live in where words really matter, but also the stories about people matter because they help us understand what human beings are going to do. And so I, I love the fact it was almost a polemical gesture to put this building next to the Supreme Court and Congress, but it was also a very hopeful gesture because it said, we can't live together in community and democracy without the resources of history, poetry, theater. Those are part of what it means to have a civil society. And I, you know, who, where else is that? I just, I think it's amazing that that is the case up on Capitol Hill. There's a lot going on with the Shakespeare, the Folger Shakespeare Theater. I mean, it's a it's a monument, as you say, to Shakespeare. It uh, serves as a symbol and a living message to uh, the current day. It has a working theater associated with it. It is a repository for priceless artifacts, and it is a place where scholars go to generate scholarship. Um, there is a lot. There's a lot going on for the casual Shakespeare <laughs> fan. Well, Ooh. the casual Shakespeare fan should come, come on. I mean, we, so we're in the middle of a renovation. We're adding 12,000 square feet of new public space, new gardens, but our goal is to abundantly welcome many, many more people to uh, be able to engage them in these conversations about what is it that makes us human? What are the crises, the faults, the virtues, the things that drive us? And to use the collection and theater and I would just say humanities conversations to bring that all together. But hey, if you're up on your civics tour and you go see the Capitol, you should walk down the street two blocks and you could see 82 Shakespeare first folios wow. and so much more. And then just get a taste of, of what in the 21st century we think about this 400 year old writer. I couldn't agree more. People should go to it. And to be, uh, to go to a sort of a micro version of that, seeing a first folio is really uh, an experience unto itself. And and because it, it's the original text, it's the er text, right? Uh, and I remember when I was uh, a student holding a original manuscript from Tennessee Williams, which is a little different than Shakespeare, but, but still. And yeah. seeing his writing on the page and, you know, I had to have gloves and it was in a cell, you know, I couldn't really touch it, but like it was breathtaking to me. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that for those people, ju just that manuscript alone will is the, is worth the price of admission to the Folger because it's just, it's an astounding moment. Well, and admission is free and you'll be able to visit in the fall of 22 when we reopen our doors. 
But Jim, I, you know, I really resonate with that idea that the, the books themselves, you know, there, there are three really important spots for connecting with Shakespeare, the Stratford-upon-Avon birthplace and birthplace trust. That's where he grew up. That's the landscape that he saw. It's where he taught. It's where his family was. Second is the south bank of the, of the Thames in London at Shakespeare's Globe. That is the place where this art form developed. And it's, it's just exhilarating to, to be able to look at the same water and shores that Shakespeare did and see the kind of place he worked. And then I think the Folger is central to that because the books are as, they are a physical trace of the fact that this man existed. Be theater is so amazing because it's a vanishing art form, right? It disappears as soon as it happens. And if not for the printing press, well, all those words would be gone, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to see into Shakespeare's mind by looking at the books that are really a physical trace of the life of, of this person. It reminds me, I was having a conversation with another spectacular poet, Rita Dove, the former US poet laureate. And she told me the story of sitting on her couch with her volume of Shakespeare and a peanut butter sandwich in her hand. Yeah. And she said, you know, my Shakespeare probably has little bits of crumbs and peanut butter. Um, she's one of the most important living poets. And that book is important because it captures a moment in a developing poet's life. And there's just this physical connection that reminds us that these people lived, they had great powers, they had great faults as so many human beings, all of us have, but that's an amazing record. Yeah, and they ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, well, in Shakespeare's case, it was like hazelnuts and oysters or something, right? <laughs> right, and some mead, perhaps. <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of my brief time at the Folger Shakespeare Library. I, I had the opportunity to work in DC for some months and I found myself, you know, an interloper at the library very, very frequently. I, I somehow managed to finagle myself a card. Why did you feel like an interloper? <laughs> well, I was by no means a serious academic, but okay. I was among, surrounded by serious academics. And I just loved being there. I went there many, many times. I, ha I even had a, a shelf, you know, where I could, where I could keep the books that, oh. <laughs> that I was pouring through. <laughs> Which was a real thrill. I mean, it had my name on it and everything. But one of the things that I remember so fondly is that it's it's a living and breathing place where scholarship is being actively generated. So so there's kind of a there's kind of a pulse when you walk in there and you see scholars, you know, seated at their tables with stacks and stacks of books all around them, and it's it's very very quiet. But at a certain hour, there is tea time, and so everyone takes yeah. a break, puts their books aside, and gathers in um, in this communal space. There's tea and, and cookies, and there's conversation around around a table for some forty five minutes or something like that every day. It was a really really nice that. ritual. Well, the conversation is so important. I mean, I know what it's like to sit in one of those chairs for six to eight hours deep in study, but a lot of the people who work with this collection do need to just walk around a bit. And then, you know, it's one of the only buildings you can walk into where over 20 people have read the whole of the Fairy Queen, just for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking about Britomart and the Fairy Queen. What do you think? And someone can actually talk back, right? <laughs> so 
if you're a person who's dedicated your life to studying these texts or trying to understand these traditions, being able to have a common set of references and over tea, just say, hey, what this is what I'm thinking about. That's really exciting. When you say it's electric, I, I, I definitely feel that too. And the ways in which scholarship and criticism keeps going, you know, it, it's like, it's not like we are at a loss for things to say about Shakespeare. And it's not because of some conspiracy of English professors that like, oh, we need to keep this going. Um, it's a more demand driven kind of thing. But uh, you see the waves of what occupies us as human beings, as citizens, as family members, as, as people living in history come right into the scholarship. So I'll just give you for an example, the last 20 years of scholarship about how Shakespeare talks about race and how characters, Othello, um, uh, Aaron, the Moor from Titus, uh, Shylock, but, but other characters who are in a way talking about race all the time, how that has become part of our perception of this writer. You know, that's a deep, that is a deep topic and it's an urgent one. And so in the wake of the last year that we've lived through and the important protests and demands for racial justice to see that some of the things we are living with and trying to reckon with are in these stories and to ask ourselves, what do we think of that? What, is, what demands are made of me as a human being when I hear these things said about this character? Right? That's all important. And it wouldn't be as easy to connect if you didn't have scholars and teachers who are kind of already going down, you know, going down the road of asking, where does this hit me? Where is this? What are the big questions here? So it's not static, right? It's, it's, it's a conversation that changes and it's pretty, uh, you know, scholars like to argue. So it's, uh, it's not the same as the arguments you get in social media, which are about scoring points and posturing. Uh, I, I mean, what I enjoy about hearing really, really serious people who study and think about this is that they're able to lay out an entire tradition, an entire thought trajectory, which you can disagree with, you can modify, but that's the, that's the thrilling stuff. And it's, there's not, it's not gonna stop. No, not with him, not with Shakespeare. One of the things that I love about the Folger is that it's not just a library for scholars. There's that, you know, you have a, you have a theater attached to it that you do productions. Uh, you have uh, a series of symposiums and conversations and a podcast. Um, one of your conversations was the Critical Race Conversation Series, uh, which is what I think you were just referring to. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's, it's interactive. It's, there, it's creating, you know. Uh, we interviewed a guy who, Robert Richmond. Does that, right? that ring a bell? Yeah. 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 He's, yep. he's directed many shows. So, yeah. So the Folger is, it's not just a library. It's a, it's a producing organization. It's, it's, it's a living, breathing laboratory, I guess, is a, is a way of thinking about it. Um, and I, and I, you know, in addition to the fact that when I'm teaching my Shakespeare class, I steer my students to the online version of, of the Folger Library Shakespeare series, you know, all the texts. Well, yeah. Um, and that's all free, which is also incredible. Um, that was, that was something we started doing um, soon after our, I arrived. It was, it was an interesting decision because uh, it, actually that is a, published 
it's a it's a product. I mean, it's so we sell uh, right. to support the research that goes into creating those texts. It's the best selling uh, pre college Shakespeare text in the United States. And I remembered going up to New York to talk to our publisher Simon and Schuster and saying. We think that what we're selling is the notes and glosses that help you understand what those words mean, but we see a real value in putting the words themselves up online for free. And, and, and it turned out that was an okay thing to do because people still purchase the editions and use them in classrooms, but the, the lookup power of the Folger Shakespeare, the ability to find any phrase, any word, or even some of the more kind of rocket science-like features, you can actually use an API and ask it to spit out or produce every line that Hamlet hears when he's on stage. Wow. It's the most, as far as I know, it's the most deeply encoded literary text online. It's, it is addressable in all of these interesting ways. So we look forward to using it as a kind of centerpiece to an ecology of other digital things like the sources for the plays or pictures of performance or audio snippets, all of those things could adorn the base digital text. So, it, you know, we'd really love to find ways of putting people in touch with performance and collections. And it turns out that millions of people just want to know what the words are. And, and that's a great place to start because Google will, tip, will bring you to us but then, you know, oh, well, you're curious about this. We're actually, let's look at this thing Shakespeare was reading when he was writing this scene. That's, that's a great way to, to make those connections. Yeah. I thought it would be nice at this point to segue to some of those words. And we always ask our guests to share with us some of their favorite words of Shakespeare's. And you have selected uh, a piece to read for us today. Can you tell us about this piece? Sure. Well, I'm particularly drawn to Shakespeare's romance plays, which are kind of tall tales about families that are separated and then they come back together. And the endings are always really important because it, it's the moment when the reunion happens. It also tends to be the moment in the romance plays. So Twelfth Night has romance qualities, Comedy of Errors does, The Tempest, Cymbeline, uh, those plays often have Pericles as well. They have an ending where not only do people meet and, and they can't believe that they're meeting someone that they thought was lost, but they start to tell the story of how they got there. And that, that I think is such a powerful thing about these plays is someone saying, here's what was happening. Here's what I know now about what was happening and how I feel now that we're here. And that cresting the wave of getting to, to the present of the moment you're delivering this speech from the past, which was so difficult and convoluted, you know, a lot happens. And, and rhetorically, it's pretty complicated too, because you're hearing someone delivering from the perspective of the present their remembrance of what it was like in the past and giving you that information of this, then this, then this, but you're, it's all colored with the feeling of the new knowledge. What's that new piece of knowledge? It's that I have found you. And being able to get that feeling into words is just spectacular. And, and I see it in those, those speeches, but the one I wanted to read today which is one of my favorites, is from the end of Twelfth Night. 
and it is Viola's speech. Viola, who is still in disguise, having dressed as a man, now arriving on stage and seeing her brother, Sebastian, who he, she thinks is dead. Now, everybody else uh, thinks there's only one of these people, but since they're twins, you know, they're now seeing these two people and the facts on stage are now starting to be stated in words. And that's, that's part of the drama. So I love this speech when Viola is essentially kind of being asked to, to confirm in words what they're already seeing. And she's looking ahead to the moment uh, when they are all gonna grasp this magnificent fact that they're all together. And she says, it's complicated. So it's worth kind of reading. And then we'll try to talk about what the words mean. But let me just read this. This is a final act of Twelfth Night, roughly line 261. And Viola says, if nothing lets to make us happy both, but this my masculine usurped attire, do not embrace me till each circumstance of place, time, fortune do cohere and jump that I am Viola. Amazing. Yeah. So how does that work? Um, well, the thing we really wanna hear is delayed until halfway through the speech and it's a statement, I am Viola. That's pretty right. direct. It's really nice and yep. simple, but we're not allowed to get that. <laughs> In fact, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the play is to get us to the point where we say, yes, you're Viola. Yes, you're Sebastian. But Shakespeare does something really interesting here. He says, this moment is so exciting. I am gonna draw it out. <laughs> And in fact, I'm gonna do something so that the moment never really happens all at once. I'm gonna let it happen multiple times. So that's why this speech begins with an if, which is a conditional. Um, she's saying, she's not saying I am Viola yet. She's saying, if these things are true, dot, 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 then I'm Viola. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a kind of hypothetical that everyone knows is true. And why would Shakespeare do this? It's so simple. Just say, I am, I'm Viola. No, it's more interesting to toy with the idea that she might be a little longer. So this is one of those great delaying deferral tactics. And uh, in rhetoric, it would be called dilation. It's to kind of keep talking uh, and make the story go on more because your hungry listener doesn't want to let go. And I love this. If nothing lets to make us happy, but so if the only thing that's sitting between us and total happiness is the clothing that I'm wearing, <laughs> if, if that's the case, if nothing lets to make us happy both, but this, my masculine usurped attire, and then what would you, why would you say that? Do not embrace me. <laughs> Everyone's looking. Why don't you guys embrace? Right. Do not embrace me. Here's the condition till each circumstance of place, time, fortune do cohere and jump that I am Viola. Complex uh, grammar there, but don't, don't hug me until all the pieces of this puzzle are perfectly aligned. And that word jump there, which I really love, 
is a word from carpentry that refers to a joint that is perfectly mitered. So the pieces go together almost exactly at a level. That's what, that's what it means for them to jump. And so she's saying, let's just enjoy this a little bit longer and imagine what it will be like when I'm dressed in my usual clothing, you are over there, I am over here, and it all lines up perfectly. So it's, it's wonderfully complex. It gives you what you want and it withholds something that you want. And that's amazing. That's part of desire. That's how, that's how desire works. So I love the speech. I also love the fact that it, it kind of looks in a twinkly eyed way at the fact that people often find it very hard to acknowledge that the thing they've longed for their entire life could actually happen. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, and that is a struggle. Comedy of Errors is a play about, you know, two twins. They're looking for each other. One set is looking for the other. There's one simple explanation for why everything is so weird in Ephesus. It's because I'm there with my twin and I've been looking for them my whole life. <laughs> right. But it's the last thing they can think of. Right. And, and I think that's a, that is a psychologically deep insight, which is that we live in a state of defense or we, we try to defend ourselves from the sources of our happiness, mostly from the fear that, that they can't be satisfied or never will happen. And, and that defended self, which makes so much sense, um, sometimes has to step aside to the happy self that says, oh my gosh, sometimes you, you just get it right. The circumstances right. jump and, and you know, that happiness means lucky, that's hap. That's the root of that word. Right. Sometimes you're lucky. And, you know, I think this is a pretty realistic, psychologically attuned, and Viola is so, you know, perceptive. It's a really attuned moment. She knows just how hard it is to acknowledge the facts that sometimes you are lucky. Yeah. I think, I, I also think that it, it's coming off of a, a little back and forth between Viola and Sebastian, where they're like, well, my father had this on his face and I had, you know, and there's like, they're, they're testing each other. And then yeah. she, she does this. And I also really like the fact that what Shakespeare does is in this moment is he combines in the rhetoric, uh, the if, you know, the conditional, but also in the action, because she's saying, no, don't embrace me, you know? And so you can just picture <laughs> that Sebastian's like chomping at the bit to embrace his sister, but she's like, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Yeah, and so you're right. Both rhetorically and in the actual playing of it, he's doing the same thing, Shakespeare is. Um, I do have a funny tale about this moment when I was directing Twelfth Night, the actor playing Sebastian, all he wanted to do was hug Viola. I mean, like, <laughs> like it was, I had to really like, like get him to stop hugging her. Cause I'm saying it's in the text that you can't hug her, you know? He's like, but I could. And then she could push me away. I'm like, no, 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 we can't do no, that. No, there's a stage direction right in there. Right, right in there. And so it was really funny because the, you know, a modern actor who's connected is going to want to, you know, take that moment and embrace. And, and I, to your point, Shakespeare is teasing it out a little bit longer. These are great moments. I love the, I love the idea that this moment is dilated. Um, you know, in performance, it, it all the heavy lifting is done by this point. And when we arrive in these act five sort of resolution moments, 
the audience is so relieved and happy that there will be nothing confusing is going to happen. All of the <laughs> All of their questions will be resolved. The bad guys are going to get their comeuppance. The good guys are going to get their award pretty soon. Everybody gets to go to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and Shakespeare has got these reliable laugh lines that you can't, you just can't miss on. And everyone's having a great time by the time we get to this point in the play. So how delightful that Shakespeare's decided to milk it in this speech. <laughs> oh, I, that's such a good point that the action is 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 right there where you need it to be. I sometimes think of, uh, you know, you look at that simple statement, I am Viola. The audience doesn't really need to know all of this speech and the complex kind of pirouettes that Shakespeare's doing on time and storytelling. You just hear that and you know you're there. Uh, but I, I'm really interested in when you slow it down and people do actually try to understand the words and I don't pretend to understand all of them but I do believe in slowing it down. And it's like the words are a second script or the rhetoric and the images are this other script that you can consult in order to understand how people are feeling. And, and in theater, you, as you both know so well, you don't have a soundtrack in the way you do it in theater. You can't do flashbacks in the way you do in film. Really, you just have the, the people who are there and Shakespeare is, is finding this other channel he can use to color the atmosphere and mood and it's imagery, word choice and rhetoric. And the rewarding thing for me as someone who, who gets a lot out of these plays is, and when I've taught the plays, I've tried to do this is you, you ask, so like, where did this word come from? Why is he talking about joining things like a carpenter? Like what? He's not talking about it. Why, why would you go to that aisle in the rhetorical supermarket where it's carpentry, right? And start pulling things off the shelf during a reunion scene. But it's actually a way that for a person who doesn't have a soundtrack that swells and that tells you how to feel, it's these words. And you may not know you're hearing them, but on some level you might register, oh, this word kind of comes from somewhere else. And that's why I think it's, it's rewarding to actually really look at the words. I don't think it's always necessary to understand the action. It's not always necessary to emotionally get the connection in the stories, but it's this other place where the action's happening. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and particularly as performers, you know, as, as an actor approaching the text, when you hit that word jump, you're going to jump to conclusions about what that word means, <laughs> um, right? And so, but, but if you take it in, a, in its current modern meaning, it doesn't really quite fit. Um, it doesn't jump. Um, and so I think when you slow it down and you take a look at it, it's we've had these discussions with countless performers and you find out that what the meaning of jump is um, in the old, you know, the carpentry meaning, um, it starts to make sense. And as a performer, it's really important for you to slow down and look at those things, um, including mm. the word like let's, right? That word let's, um, which is, we know what it means, but uh, you know, if you're approaching Shakespeare for the first time, you might be like, I don't understand the sentence anymore. Um, and if you look up the word let's, it's, it's prevents, right? Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I couldn't agree more about slowing down. When I listen to contemporary music and 
And again, I, I need footnotes because I don't understand context. My 16 uh, year old son will say, well, actually dad, this is this, and this right. is this. So it's like, it's like we're never gonna catch up, right? I mean, we'll always need a little hand. Yep, totally. Well, that's, that, that goes back to what you were talking about earlier, which is this English language is a living, breathing thing. And that's why we need poets too, because especially now, you know, poets will put the words together in a different order. And sometimes that's all it takes, but I, I feel we desperately need people to put some other words together in, an, in a different order because we're exposed to formulaic short form expression over and over again. It's there to help you. It's there to express a posture and an attitude. It often pr presents no information at all and it's highly repetitive. And then, you know, what happens when a poet walks through the door and can take a hold of our language? Amanda Gorman. You bet. Yeah. You know, that's a, such a great example, Jim. That, that's why we need artists and poets who come from all backgrounds to have that microphone and to have it be a national microphone. And, and she's doing something that happens in Shakespeare a lot is that it's the daughter or the young woman who needs to come out and set things straight, you know, or to come out and really say what's going on. And by the end of his career, Shakespeare is always looking to younger women to be the truth teller, to be the doctor, to be the, the healer. And often it's older men who need to hear the message. So maybe that was what was Shakespearean about that moment in addition to the words and poetry. Yeah. That's a really great insight. I want to, I'm going to have to share that with my students. Well, I'm glad that. that you guys are continuing to share your thoughts and talk to artists and people like me who like the footnotes. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you, you guys are a lot of fun to talk to. Thank you. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.